0: Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Piketty, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Sophie White, Professor of American Studies and History at the University of Notre Dame, about her new book, Voices of the Enslaved, Love, Labor, and Longing in French Louisiana, published by the Omohundro Institute and the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. In 18th century New Orleans, the legal testimony of some 150 enslaved women and men, like the testimony of free colonists, was meticulously recorded and preserved. Questioned in criminal trials as defendants, victims, and witnesses about attacks, murders, robberies, and escapes, they answered with stories about themselves, stories that rebutted the premise on which slavery was founded. Focusing on four especially dramatic court cases Voices of the Enslaved draws us into Louisiana's courtrooms, prisons, courtyards, plantations, bayous, and convents to understand how the enslaved viewed and experienced their worlds. As they testified, these individuals charted their movement between West African, indigenous, and colonial cultures. They pronounced their moral and religious values, and they registered their responses to labor, to violence, and above all, to the intimate romantic and familial bonds they sought to create and protect. Their words, punctuated by the cadences of Creole and rich with metaphor, produced riveting autobiographical narratives as they veered from the questions posed by interrogators. Carefully assessing what we can discover, what we might guess, and what has been lost forever, Sophie White offers both a richly textured account of slavery in French Louisiana and a powerful meditation on the limits and possibilities of the historical archive. Before I welcome our guest Professor White to the show, I would be remiss for not mentioning that Voices of the Enslaved has received a number of prizes and accolades, including the 2019 Kemper and Lila Williams Prize in Louisiana History from the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Louisiana Historical Association. Voices of the Enslaved was also co-winner of the 2020 Summer Lee Book Prize, from the Center for History and Culture of Southeast Texas and the Upper Gulf Coast at Lamar University, and also honorable mention for the 2020 Merle Curdy Social History Award from the Organization of American Historians. Welcome and congratulations, Professor White, to the show, and thank you so much for finding the time to discuss Voices of the Enslaved with me.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I'm so excited to sit down and talk with you today about Voices of the Enslaved. Um, I was truly blown away with how remarkable and rich the accounts that you bring to life in the book are, as well as the pleasure of reading this book from cover to cover. It's been quite some time, I think, you know, in the midst of all of the chaos going on in the world that I've been able to sit down and truly enjoy a book in its entirety. So I really wanted to thank you for that. It's such a remarkable book you've produced.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm honored by your words. Thank you. Uh,
0: it. As I was mentioning, I think it's it's truly remarkable, all that you accomplish in the space of 220 some odd pages. And I think that not only I, but our readers hopefully will be drawn into each of the chapters uh, to discover more about life in 18th century French colonial Louisiana, and also the richness of these uh, archives that you use, and the testimonies of the enslaved that you so vividly bring to life. I wanted to say that the layout of the book is in some ways a bit unconventional for scholarly monographs, and I think refreshingly so, And that you use four separate court cases to narrate the voices, experiences, and intimate lives of the enslaved in 18th century French colonial Louisiana. Um, and as historians, our work, I th- it truly is inherently framed by the archival sources that we encounter and then interpret. I found Voices of the Enslaved to be such a transformative piece of scholarship in the field of Atlantic slavery and early African American history for a number of reasons, but chief among them the very specific arguments that you make about the nature of enslaved testimony and the ability to convey autobiographical elements of individuals who have been overwhelmingly overlooked in the archival record. I was hoping that you could speak a bit more about your first encounters with these sources and the possibilities that you envisioned when you encountered them in, you know, over the course of constructing this really beautiful book. Uh,
1: yes, I'd love to speak to that. I have been working with these archives for many, 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 many years, as have uh, many other historians of Louisiana. And we have known of the richness of this archive, um, really of criminal trials in essence in which the enslaved testify. And so many of us have turned to them for information about the lives of the enslaved and other questions that we might have. But for me, there was a a very particular moment when the the project took on a new life and I saw something that had been staring at me in the face and I hadn't quite put my finger on. And it was in working on a trial that is actually not from the New Orleans archives but from the Natchitoches French colonial archives and it was a criminal trial in which this young man testifies and he is brought in to testify as an accomplice um, and also accused of of a series of thefts but the questioning is also um the questioning does something quite specific. It's trying to get him to speak about the particular crime that he's accused of. So the questioning has a purpose. You know, what did you do? When did you do it? Etc. But in reading his replies, I realized that there was something else going on in these trials. So in this case, we have this young man giving an answer. And then the scribe, at some point, who's writing the transcript, says, and then Etienne this is his name, Etienne, said, without being asked. And it went on for another page. And then I am reading, and next question, and then the scribe again at some point said, and then Etienne said, again, without being asked. And he went on writing for another page. And once more, like, and Etienne said, again, of his own initiative, and went on to write the answers. So this was really important for me. It was a key moment to realize that two things are happening. One is that there is a clerk who is transcribing this testimony as it is going along, almost word by word. And they are writing everything that is being said by the deponent, the person testifying. Hence, he would write that page after the, you know, the, the um, saying what he, uh, adding adding without being asked. And the second thing is that deponents are often talking about aspects that aren't necessarily covered by the court case. And what, in this particular instance, this young man was talking about was actually not really much to do with the crime, but a lot more to do with his relationships with the other people who were also being interrogated. Who fed who? Who promised him what who threatened him with something, and I took that um, I took that court case and went back to look at all of the other court cases with these words in mind, which was you know what did they say without being asked, what was coming through the testimony that was not pertinent to the questioning that really had very little to do with the concerns of the interrogators, which are usually very narrow but that were very expressive about the person speaking. Now, not every person, not every deponent was that free in their answers, but very often you would hear moments when the deponent would go off on tangents. And those are the bits that I followed, the parts that I followed in particular in charting the course of this book in each chapter. What were they wanting to talk about and what could we make of those? So that was the the key moment for me in terms of thinking about this archive and shaping uh, the way that this book has ended up being. And much of what they wanted to talk about were um, issues to do with relationships, with, as the subtitle of the book says, um, these are voices of the enslaved, but it's love, labor, and longing.
0: I wanted to quote one of the... There are so many passages throughout the book that I found myself noting, but there was one specifically in which you write quote "The records of trials in which the enslaved testify are far from perfect, and their voices are not perfectly free yet this archive affords us access to a space in which the enslaved narrated their own stories with immediacy with urgency and you go on to I believe that was in the epilogue of the book, but you write in the beginning of the book as well that which is related that quote: the fragments are often enough to bring these lives back to the surface. Only when we have snapshots to work from. End quote. I think this is a really important point, not only in what you've just recollected in the what you know the nature of the testimony itself, but also in that so often as historians of the enslaved, we focus on the silences of these archives and what they do not say versus what they say, although not explicitly, and what can be inferred from them, I guess, more succinctly put. And I think that your book does such a tremendous job of evoking that which is both said and that which is unsaid, not only about the inner lives or the laboring worlds or the social worlds of these individuals, but also their aspirations and what freedom meant to them. I think, uh, and spe- specifically, uh, Regarding the latter, I was struck by the way in which you discuss how, in the final chapter of the book, Kene and uh, her husband, how they envision freedom as being able to cohabitate and to live uh, a you know a romantic but also a physically proximal life together, and the, the you know the um, the the great lengths that they traveled to be able to do so, which I would love to discuss with you in a few moments, but. One of the connecting threads throughout the book or the arc that you draw is in re- with regards to the notion of intimacy. And I was hoping that you could spell out to our readers how you define intimacy and the ways in which you see this notion informing the individual cases of the enslaved that you discuss throughout the book as a connective tissue.
1: Yes. And, uh- I'm not the first to point out that the period we're dealing with here, the 18th century, has so many uh, intimacy is key to the experience of daily life. I mean, you know, from our standpoint in the 21st century, we're used to you know children sleeping in their own bedrooms, having bathrooms, having private spaces, and and this is a different world. And I think it, it's worth remembering that. But when we're dealing, so everyone is caught up in a it's kind of these webs of Intimacy to the very physical as well as emotional, sexual, et cetera. Um, but I think when we're dealing with the enslaved, we have these added layers of the forced intimacy that is um, imposed upon them. Uh, surveillance, uh, uh, a, a master's access to the body of his, uh, his slave. Uh, if we think of a, you know, slave sale, access to the body to examine it. Um, and also, of course, if we think about violence, we also have the intimacy of violence. So I think it's it's a useful way of thinking about the experience of being enslaved in the 18th century, um, building on the intimacy of daily life in that period. But it also forces us to think about um Perhaps not always the the negative side, and I think um, in writing this book, I've become much more attuned to the ways that enslaved people sought out pleasures and love and affection within that uh, scope of what is possible to them, even within the surveillance, etc. And so that other side of intimacy—that's not the forced aspect, but that also is. Uh, as you mentioned, this this chapter, the last chapter, with this couple who have different owners and cannot be together unless they run away, but that act of wanting to be together is is an act of intimacy as well that they are trying to control. So I think it's it can operate on all sorts of levels, but one of them indeed is just the very practical sense of who's living where, who gets to inhabit which spaces, and and who can watch over them, stop them from doing certain things, um, be violent, whether through the courts or um, extrajudicial uh, violence. So it's, it's a useful way to think about that world, but that is magnified when we're dealing with enslaved people and the constraints that they're living under, but also what they might seek out. And I think to look for those moments when they are showing us what is important to them that they want to be with certain people or that they want to talk about their children. Those moments, I think, are very important and, and speak to a, another kind of intimacy that I think is very important for us to, to, to keep in mind front and center.
0: Absolutely. And and in, in hearing you speak now, it, it brings to memory the really remarkable work of the late historian Stephanie Camp, um, and the ways in which enslaved women were able to find joy in an otherwise incredibly oppressive system through. Body politics through dance, through adorning themselves in clothing that they felt beautiful in, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the subsequent work that she was working on at the time of her passing about beauty and conceptions of beauty Mm -hmm. for uh, African women, and I think and men and I think it would just (laughs) absolutely you're right absolutely (laughs) chapter three chapter
1: chapter four and I think that's (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) exactly (laughs) and I think that's
1: dressing up like a gentleman.
0: Absolutely. And the importance of the clothing that he was wearing as a way to not only affirm his masculinity under slavery, but also as a way to uh gain entree into the the, the court courtship rituals of the enslaved. But I, I wanted to go back to chapter five. I think we we keep I keep finding myself going back to the story of Jean Baptiste and his his wife Canet. And I was hoping that you could give our listeners a, a brief overview of the case itself. And in hearing you just a few moments ago, you you, you made a, a really important remark about the ways in which we, it's often difficult, but it is possible, in fact, to find moments of joy in the lives of the enslaved. And I was particularly struck by the way in which in, um, I believe it was Jean Baptiste or his wife's deposition that you begin chapter five with, that they make it a point to say that when they were apprehended, they were sleeping together in their bed. And I think that is a very important moment where you see the intimate lives of the enslaved women and men that you discuss throughout the book really come to life for me. Um, not to mention all of the different links, like I said, that they traveled to be together and to remain together. And I was hoping that you could give our listeners a bit of an idea of, of their story and what their experiences uh, said to you about, uh, you know, romantic bonds, but also marriage, both legal and extra uh, extra legal marriage practices among the enslaved in French colonial Louisiana.
1: Yeah. Um, so this is a, a really, I think, actually hearing you talk about that case, you know, I, I, I'm very touched by that. And it also reminds me that when I work on these trials, there are so many moments when I feel touched by these individuals. And it's, um, yeah, I think there are very mo- many moments that are touching, and, and there are a few in that case. So this is a story of two individuals who live in a fairly proximate area, but they have different owners. And the story kind of comes to life because there is a trial. They have both been captured and they are interrogated. He is not a runaway. He is living in a a swampy area. He's running one of the industries for his uh, master, but is very isolated. And at some point, he has managed to get Kuni, who's the woman he's been with, to come and join him so that the court case itself hinges on whether she ran away to be with him, or had he kidnapped her to bring her to live with him. And of course, that's the legal question. And we have two different owners, hence they're interested in litigating it. But in the course of their interrogation, they both, um, they both talk about, and they would not be in the room while the other one is being interrogated. So they're independently speaking. And as they're asked to describe the moment when they're captured, they both say that it happened at night um, and they were taken as they were asleep in their cot, which is their bed, at the door of their cabin. So it's, both of them are evoking this extraordinary image of a couple asleep at night, but also, if we think about the, the language they use, it's the possessive in, in their cot at the door of their cabin. Um, And, of course, if we're thinking about possession and who gets to, you know, the status of an enslaved who can't own property, let alone a a cabin, but we've got this sense of this is their world. So they're captured. And then as they are interrogated and as other bystanders are brought in and other people who know the story, and, of course, I had to do quite a lot of detective work by um, looking for other documents um, to flesh out what was going on here – um, the story slowly emerges of a couple that has tried everything to be together. And they have, he has tried to get his master to buy her. She has tried to get her master to buy him. And each master corroborates this. You know, oh, yes, we've tried, but you know, oh, he wanted too much money for her. Oh, uh, you know, So there's been this long history to try and legalize their status in a way. They've tried to work through the system. It hasn't worked they have run away once before and were captured and were brought back. And one of the people who captured them gives a testimony saying that Jean-Baptiste said, don't send me back. I'll, I'll do anything. I don't want to be apart from Cuné. So already in that moment, we get a sense of how joined they are. And we have very little testimony generally from women, uh, enslaved women, and so the testimony of this woman is particularly important. And one of the other moments that was key for me in listening to her testimony, because in a way we are hearing it. It's it's oral testimony that's being given. At some point she is asked, Do do you want to be with Jean-Baptiste? This is the point when they're trying to determine if he's kidnapped her or otherwise. You know, did you want to do you want to be with him? And she says, Yes. And she doesn't just say yes, she says yes. And we have been together since the time of Governor Vaudreuil. And we know that Governor Vaudreuil was in office at least 14 years before they are captured. So she's given a sense of the longevity of this relationship and we get a sense, therefore, of how hard they've, they've fought to be together. So the next part that I um, address in that chapter is not just that this is a love story. I mean, it's a desperate love story. And when they run away um, the second time, it, it's, it's at quite some risk to themselves. They're, they're not easy. Um, when they run, to, run away to, to Mobile, these are perilous uh, waterways that they've used. And uh, uh, so at, at physical risk, they could have died on the way and they didn't. But other than this love story of two people desperate to be together, There's something else going on in how they describe what they do and how they live once they are together in um, this cabin that is isolated. There are no white people around. There are probably some Native Americans that they're interacting with and buying and trading goods with. But the way they describe it is that Cunet is always described by herself and by Jean-Baptiste as doing nothing while she's there. He's working at a tar factory for his master. But she's just described as, you know, what did you do there? I did nothing. In fact, she's looking after livestock. She's looking after um, some poultry. She's looking after their um, garden in which they're growing vegetables. So she's actually doing work. And presumably, because we know that his master is only giving him unshucked maize we know that she's presumably grinding it to cook their meals at night so through this court case we also then get an insight into all of the other forms of labor that are involved in in running their their household this cabin that they live in together and much of this work um, is is female work to to feed them etc and so it's then um, possible to start thinking about how they're picturing this relationship that they have once they're in their cabin that is, um, has been pulled away from the constraints that enslaved labor practices would impose upon her because we know that she's actually a field worker. She's doing hard labor in the fields before she's, um, she runs away with him. And so, she's gone from being a field laborer, wielding an axe, a pickaxe, etc., to um, having a very different relationship to work that is much more akin to what a West African household would allow for, so that she's working hard, but it is very much around the sphere of, of that household. You know, the garden plot, the food, the cooking, the poultry, the livestock, and What I was able to do was to draw some parallels between their testimony and their descriptions of how they talk about her doing nothing, not just uh, as a correlation and and a contrast with what she was doing as an enslaved person, but both with how West African households um, uh, operated, but also with what happens in Louisiana when a free black man. Purchases the freedom of the woman that he wants to marry, so it is a route. One of the only routes to manumission in Louisiana is if a, a free black man wants to buy a, a woman or negotiates for her uh, freedom, which can also happen. And I notice that in each of those cases, and we don't have that many; we have a handful. The key factor, once they negotiate for the freedom of the woman they want to marry, who's a former slave. Um, is that, because in some cases, it's going to be a long-term purchase. It might take five years. It might take seven years for them to get her freedom. But during that time, her work is going to change. The husband is going to negotiate with the, the woman's owner that she will no longer do field labor, that she will do domestic work, that she might do sewing work but she will not do field labor. It's very similar to what Jean-Baptiste has done in getting kune with him. He's extricated her from the requirement to do field labor. So this is what we can, you know, the, the process with the book is having a court case, but, but moving out from there and looking at the other archives and looking at other cases, um, finding about, uh, about West African household practices and, and trying to to understand a little bit better what it means, therefore, um, when they're describing their their household in certain terms.
0: Right. And I think it's really important um, as a person who's very interested in the history of emancipation and the process that it involved, that you center the very active role that enslaved women played in the emancipation process and negotiating the terms of their emancipation. I think in a lot of ways, I, I, I often will think of the role of free Black men in Northern communities at the turn of the 19th century, and that they are often centered as the active agents in the creation of free Black communities. But it's the unseen labor of in, of free Black women as well to bring about these social changes um, in their communities and delivering the mutual aid through their churches and through other institutions that I often draw parallels with in discussions about the manumission process for enslaved women, which is often narrated through the actions of what enslaved men did or did not do to free their wives or their female loved ones. And in the case of Kine as well, I think that what we see and is also a really important thread of your book is, is the role that material culture plays in reconstructing this history and that she specifically identifies herself as a field labor, I believe through the French word for a pickaxe. Is that right? Mm-hmm. In her yeah, deposition? Your shows Yeah. Someone who, who pickaxes. Mm. And I think that underscores the versatility also of enslaved women's labor on the, you know, the colonial frontier, uh, as well and that they are not only expected to perform domestic labor of all kinds fetching water uh, mending and stitching clothes washing clothes but also performing the backbreaking work of field labor and why you know in the case of Jean Baptiste and Kenet, we don't know whether or not they have children from the story that you recreated, but in a lot of ways it makes it makes sense that they would want their wives to relieve themselves from the physical burdens of field work in a way to ensure that they are able to safely um, carry children to full term and then deliver them healthily. Um, it's, it's such a remarkable story and it's so intricate, but I was really struck by the ways in which you connect the stories of other enslaved women, not only in New Orleans, but throughout the French empire. You cite, I believe a case in Mauritius, but also other, other cases as well as a way. Yes, absolutely. As a way to, to flesh out these experiences and to draw the parallels. But for the very reason that the testimony of enslaved women is so rare and that it's it's necessary that we seek out the archives of other outposts in order to tell their stories. It's it's just a remarkable, thank I, you, and I'm sure challenging.
1: Yes, as and, well, and it is to do with the nature of um, French trials and French testimony rules, um, which means that um, this archive is exceptional because French legal procedure requires a scribe to write down what the witness says. And it is very different to English criminal law and different to um, slave law in the colonies, in the English colonies where, you know, an enslaved person might actually not be allowed to testify at all. Or if they do, their words aren't transcribed in the way that they are in French, um, French courts. It's a legal requirement. But what that means, and, and the other aspect, is French. the French standardize their slave laws across their colonies in the way that the English colonies don't, so that you know the same rules will, will apply in Louisiana as it might in Martinique or Mauritius, which is a French colony. And so as part of this um, project, I went and looked at the trials that survive um, for Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, which is actually my birthplace. It's where I'm from. And um, and they have exceptional archives as well. And Martinique, the, the Caribbean, doesn't have so many that have survived, even though we know the trials existed. And just to, to um, follow up on your your point when you brought up those two cases, there we have women describing a similar process when they're in maroon communities, runaway communities, of not doing hard labor or not doing anything. You know, this kind of sense, we're not doing anything. they are clearly doing a lot. But there's a way of characterizing it that that is telling us something, that they are distinguishing between the work that um, enslavers are making them do and the work that they think is normal for a woman to do, both of which are hard, both of which might entail um, cultivation, for example, but are seen in very different ways. And and they themselves are telling us that there's a difference in how they see it. Um, and, And that really you know, gets us to, to this archive again because the act of transcribing all these words mean that we can get those subtleties. We can get a subtlety in how someone describes something. We can get a subtlety when Kunis says, yes, we, I want to be with Jean-Baptiste and we have been together since the time of, you know, Governor Vaudreuil. We get those additional details that are key to the work of interpretation that that is required. And... um and I think uh, you know this is one of the reasons why I put a lot of we have I have transcripts from the trials and in, in French and the translation at the start of each chapter, a lot of use of quotation because I want I want those words to be um, to be there for the reader to grasp those subtleties um, that, that are jarring often and, and striking. And, and and make us realize how exceptional this this archive is.
0: And in chapter one, you do such an excellent job of conveying the different laws that govern the ability of the enslaved to testify in criminal and civil cases um, that are governed by the, the Code Criminel as well as the Code Noir. Um, and I was hoping that you could Speak about that a a bit to introduce to our readers who may be a bit more familiar with the British Atlantic uh, slave system and the ways in which more often than not, I mean, there are notable examples such as New England where the enslaved were able to testify um, for enslaved women if they were married. However, you know, the doctrine of coverture restricted their ability to testify in certain cases. But I'm curious if you could flesh out those differences between these two uh, slave systems. And the the ways in which the the criminal law governs it, you know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so no, no,
1: no. And it it's because it is. It there, there are these two um, these two aspects. Um, one of them is is just the difference between French um, slave law, which really is standardised. I mean, there's a lot of local input in in the formation of laws, but then they get taken over and subsumed by the French crown and disseminated and sent out again. So. Louisiana and Mauritius in the Indian Ocean have an identical slave code, for example. Um, You don't have the same... You have a much more piecemeal approach in the uh, English colonies, uh, not all of which allow slave testimony anyway. And there are restrictions with Louisiana as well. Not all slave testimony is allowed, but enough of it is. Um, I'm happy to say more about that or read the book. (laughs) And um, so... (laughs) They allow testimony but one of the really big differences between uh, French legal procedure and English legal procedure is this fact that in where even where slave testimony is allowed in the English colonies it's not always written down with the same attention to detail it's not so important so many of the trials that we know about for the english colonies are actually written after the fact by someone who purports to have been there you know maybe it was a judge i was a judge for this court so i or i was in the court and they will write something and it might be published but that's done after the fact the trial records that i'm dealing with are written at the time so the procedure is um it's oral and i think this is very important testimony is is a it, it's spoken word You'd be asked questions, and as they write it down, the scribe, or as they speak, the scribe does a shorthand version of what's being said. And then he comes back, and at the end of the testimony, he reads it back to the deponent, who can then say, no, 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 I didn't say that, or I meant this, and you can see um, this evidence in the trial record. So it's it's really an archive of what was said, uh, or what was dictated, there are certain rules they turn it into the third person um it's obviously you know the testimony might be predominantly in creole but it'll it'll be formalized french except that it's very clear um, it, because it's written down so quickly on the fly as the person is speaking it's a very uh, spontaneous transcript and very often in fact you know it's Often, when a deponent speaks, they might start quoting uh, a dialogue they had with someone. Well, I went there and they said to me, "You know go away and then and we you immediately see in the transcript where dialogue is happening. I mean, you might as well see um, quotation marks because it's that clear, and this is also where you often see Creole coming in actual phrases in Creole in which the scribe has just written it down as he goes along, and there it is um, so One of the things to, and you alluded to this, uh, Jared, early on, is when we're dealing with uh, archives to do with slavery, quite rightly, or um, or slavery or anyone else who's being accused, quite rightly, we have to think about, you know, are they telling the truth? Are they scared? Um, Do they feel they have to give answers that are being expected? Uh, what is just the the process is not a a favorable one one would think <laughs> to be a, a medium for for expression and and telling us uh, something about themselves. But I think there's something else that happens when one is given oral testimony, and I think that um, we we have to think about that as a very different process to a a you know slave narrative, for example, that is dictated written. Edited, etc. Um, because I think there's a lot of spontaneity in the act of speaking. I think people go off the cuff. We're doing it now. Um, they might think they know what they want to say, and they might be thrown off course. They might suddenly want to talk about something else that that concerns them. They might want to give a better glimpse of themselves, or it might be inevitable. And I think we need to to therefore be um, um, maybe the word is open-minded in using these sources and just letting them speak and, and then see where it goes. In some testimony, it's very clear that that um, the deponent is just trying to give a very simple response or not give much detail. But in others, as the, the young man who kept going on and on and on and on and on, he had things he wanted to say and he was going to say them. So... Um, I think it's important to keep all of that in mind. And when we think about this as an archive, again, with the the beauty of the French legal system, and I'm going to say the beauty of the French legal system is that they write it down. And so it would be very hard to do this kind of work with even the slave trials that survive for, for New England or other kinds of testimony, because there isn't the same level of the texture, the detail, the subtleties are just not there in the same way in the court record, but they are in these French archives. And it's really quite, quite extraordinary.
0: I think the, the example that you, you mentioned a few moments ago about English court cases and the the ways in which these, the, you know, the accounts of these trials, uh, they're published thereafter, but they're often incredibly sensational and often include the execution of an enslaved individual for, a uh, you know, a purportedly heinous crime that they may or may not have committed, but that there is a, a way to filter in and mediate very clear biases against the enslaved in, in these types of records. Whereas in, in the French, uh, you know, the French colonial legal system allowed for essentially verbatim testimony, although it was described in the third person. And I think one of the ironies in hearing you speak about that is that sometimes language wasn't always a possibility for some of the deponents who appear in voices of the enslaved. And the example I'm referencing is in chapter chapter three, in which you discuss the, the really curious case of Marie-Jean and Lisette. Um, and Lisette, who, according to the records, they identify as a indigenous enslaved girl, but that she does not speak French and that she is not able to communicate without the presence of an interpreter. But instead she gesticulates and she signs both in her um testimony to her mistress, but also in the courtroom itself. And I think of all of the chapters, this was perhaps my favorite. And it is so beautifully done, the ways in which you are able to introduce just a litany of different things that could or could not have been going on at that time for not only Marie Jean but also for Lisette and the types of trauma that she may have been exposed to in her experiences as an Indigenous Captive And so I was hoping that you could briefly discuss that case itself and the role that language and uh, the inability to speak French posed for Alyssa as a a key witness in, in the case against Marie Jean for infanticide. Yes,
1: yeah, so this is a case that takes place in the Illinois country uh, because I wanted to Illinois country is part of Louisiana and and um, we sometimes forget this it's not just New Orleans. So this is an extraordinary case of a young enslaved um, African woman who is accused of infanticide, of giving birth and killing her child shortly after birth. After not not uh, so not abortion, but but after birth, and the only witness is a, tw- a child Lisette, who is uh, described as an Ottawa slave, which raises all sorts of questions, and I. I thought it was important to have this case for, for many reasons, but one of them was just a reminder that slavery is not restricted to, to uh, enslaving Africans in, in Louisiana in the New World, that there are indigenous slaves as well. And um so the only witness is this child. And so we have two stories that are being told through this trial. One of them is the obvious one about the infanticide. That's the whole point about the court cases. Did she or didn't she kill her child? And um, they, can't, they can't seem to make a decision or a finding in the Illinois country, and Jean is sent down to New Orleans. So, which, you know, to go back to your question about material culture, allows us to also think about, you know, and imagine what it might mean for this woman to be brought down on a convoy down on the the trip down to New Orleans, and then to be exposed to New Orleans and its different architecture, its prisons, not knowing anyone or perhaps knowing some people, etc those kinds of questions the alienation that a kind of extra alienation, so did Marie jeanne kill her child or not, and what are the circumstances and then but the and that is the court case this is all that it you know is concerned with, but the other story that emerges from this court case is that of Lisette, this child. And the court case allows us to imagine a little bit of what her experience is life as well, and what she's dealing with. So indeed, she must be newly arrived because she can't speak uh, French, and she needs an interpreter. And much of her, uh, as you mentioned, both in court, but also in, in what is relayed about how she Alerted everyone to the fact that Marie Jeanne had killed her child was through gesticulating, and so we 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 see that moment of attempts to communicate and how you know a court system might deal with it by finding an interpreter who can understand her language, but also how she would be expected to um, communicate in her daily life, not just in the court case, and that opened up also a way of thinking about this court case, not about the the death of a child, if indeed there was the death of a child, because the ultimate conclusion is that she may never have, she might, she probably gave birth to an equivalent of a stillbirth, and that there was no child that was killed by, by anyone. But it's, it becomes a court case about the relationship between Marie-Jeanne and Lisette who are have different owners but are within the same household, and they are in a working relationship with each other. So we have the older Jeanne, who is supposed to supervise the labor of the much younger Lisette. And it removes us from, from the, the very obvious and necessary link of, you know, Lisette and Marie-Jeanne's master controlling their labor, we've now got this intermediary figure, an enslaved African woman who has to supervise the work of a much younger woman, but also presumably be responsible for it. If Lisette doesn't do the work she's supposed to, it's Marie-Jeanne who will suffer. And so you see this animosity between the two women. And one of them is a childless woman who's accused of killing her child, and the other one is a motherless child. Who does not find a mother figure in Marie Jeanne, but actually quite a hard taskmaster. And you get a sense as they talk about each other, whether it's a translation for Lisette or for Marie Jeanne speaking in, in French or a version of French, you know, frustration with this child who, who, you know, she doesn't even speak French. I can't tell her what to do. Um, and so you get a very different picture of, of their daily life. Once we just allow ourselves to step away from that court case, um, and it's it's an un, it's an unpleasant court case because it's about infanticide, and um, you know was a bone found, was a bone not found of the child? Um, it's it's unresolved. It's an unpleasant court case. But if we just take a step away from from the actual trial, and this is what I try and do with the rest of the book. Just look for for the other aspects that trickle up. So with Cunet and Jean Baptiste, it was their domestic arrangement, their their work arrangements, their their life as a couple. And here, it's a relationship between a a woman and a young child that you know we'd love to think that they got on, and and they don't. And one of the reasons they don't is that slavery has imposed this. Um, requirement for Marie-Jeanne to supervise another slave and to be responsible for her. But in that space, we can still get at some information about Lisette and her experience and how she ends up in the Illinois country, and some experience about what it might be like to have been pregnant in the Illinois country in the case of Marie-Jeanne.
0: It's interesting that you, you wrote um, in that chapter that the, the in your discussion of the intimacy not only of of reproductive rights but also you you write quote the 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 the, the difficulties inherent in the the process of parenting under the duress of slavery and and you you remark throughout the chapter that this is a classic case of she said she said, so we have two competing witnesses, one whose testimony is being mediated through an interpreter. Um, and then you have, as you mentioned, the the accused in the case say, stating that she's stupid and that she's dull, and that she always has to force her to work harder and to stay on task. Which, again, it, it introduces a really interesting interpersonal dynamic between these two enslaved uh, women, and, and one being a girl. But I I was really surprised in some ways that. Marie Jean is the only woman who is formally interrogated in French colonial Louisiana for infanticide, and I'm wondering if that struck you as surprising when you you know did your your meticulous research to discover if there were other cases that paralleled hers, but for the specific reason that infanticide as an allegation is so commonplace against enslaved women in the Atlantic world. And you, and you talk about the work of Sasha Turner in her book, Contested Bodies, but also Jennifer Morgan and others who discussed the topic of reproduction under New World slavery. And in my own research on enslaved women in New England, there are multiple cases of women being brought before the courts for infanticide. And I was a bit surprised by the fact that she seems to be the only one who has or that the the surviving documents can attest that she was i guess yeah. is a better way to put that
1: um yes i i was quite struck as well because you know very familiar with the the literature around the atlantic world and also it just doesn't it does it's not a case that follows the usual script um That we find in infanticide cases, and so um, it is—it's an anomaly, but it is—it is the only one that, um, and I'm I'm fairly confident, it probably was the only one that was prosecuted. Um, And there are different um, geopolitical factors in Louisiana. There are no um, new—the slave trade to Louisiana stops in 1731 for the next 30 years, so. The increase in slaves is entirely due to reproduction. I don't know if that changes how uh, the perception of, of um, motherhood, reproduction, et cetera, and has slightly different rules in Louisiana. But um, one of the things that that chapter allowed me to do, as you mentioned, is to, to, to kind of take a step away and, and think a little bit more, because we we don't know who the father of the child is. <laughs> when in, in New Orleans, she's she's never really you know, asked, she's been pregnant once before and she is um, pregnant again in New Orleans, or so she says, and she's asked who the father is and she, you know, she answers that it's a, another slave, but she's never asked about the father of this child. And so it it allows us to think about not just the, the laws, you know, who would own this child if it had been born and it would, you know, she's female, etc. the invisibility of the father um, of the of the of the child, whether she was, you know, she, she was in fact pregnant. They, I was corroborated. Um, but the, the father's never there, is, is entirely absent. And that is of course consistent with, uh, with law. But, um, but it opened up ways for me to talk about other moments, and other trials when fathers actually do make a claim to their children or allude to them, or, you know, in one case, it's a man who runs away after uh, in fact killing his wife, but he, when he he keeps approaching the overseer and asking, and each time he asks how his children are, and so we have this very strong um, sense that men themselves are um, claiming that role of fatherhood, but the court record doesn't introduce it. The court, in its you know i 'm using them in the abstract here, never asks her who the father is. But there are ways in which when people testify, they will find ways to slip that in. And there's one case actually from Mauritius that I, uh, another one that gave me, you know, every now and then you, you get the tingles when you read this testimony. And it was a case where a runaway couple, and he is accused of killing his child. And, um, and he just said one thing. And it wasn't about whether he killed his child. He just said, you know, that night they went to bed and they lay their baby between them, the couple. And I just thought, now there's an interesting, well, interesting, there's a touching moment, isn't it? He's been accused of killing his child, but he offers this this image of going to bed that night with the child tucked between he and his wife. I mean, can you think of something more paternal. I I mean, it's a beautiful image, isn't it? And so we have to look for those little moments when they can speak a little bit more. Now, this is also a chapter where I address the fact that, you know, for all we know, Marie-Jeanne's child is her master or, or someone who's raped her. Um, and, you know, there's another kind of, that is something that she cannot talk about. So, the the, the courtroom gives a space for a lot of things to be said, but there are some things that tend not to be said nonetheless, but they can be alluded to. And it's quite striking that we can actually find moments uh, when, when those aspects are alluded to. And um, so it's, it's really not the perfect archive. Some things that we would like to know cannot they know it's not safe to, to speak in court, but that there are ways to address them and to, to reference them, and those are um, those are you know very important trails to to chase, but also to keep in mind at all times, always that always the, the, because the book is about love, it's about longing, you know, longing of couples, longing of parents, etc. I mean, it's it's that side. But we cannot forget that, that there's this overlay that's always there, and it's the surveillance. It's the forced intimacy, it's the violence, the endemic routine violence that is uh, always there, hanging in the air. Um, and um, you know, unfortunately, we, we have to always remember that even when thinking about the, the longing and the love and and those types of things.
0: Right. And I think the, the remark you just made about surveillance, it's interesting because it, there's a duality there. There's the surveillance of the slave owners and the overseers, as well as the colonists who are tasked, you know, the court officials I would include in that as well, who are tasked with enforcing the system of enslavement in French colonial Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Um, but also the surveillance of the enslaved themselves over their communities. And I think there are two specific examples that allow us to in some ways introduce themes in two, uh, two separate chapters of the book. The first being the incident involving Louison and Babette, where they are attacked on the riverbank as they're washing clothes. And the, not only the, the story which i'm i'm hoping you will elaborate upon in just a moment but the fact that there were several other enslaved individuals as well as soldiers uh, who ran to the aid of the women who were very seriously injured but as well as within the enslaved community on the um the the plantation that you discuss in chapter 4 uh involving the enslaved men and the ways in which they police the social behaviors of one another but also the ways in which um, courtship and other factors were not only enforced by the slave owners, like I said, and the overseers, but these individuals themselves. And, and recognizing outsiders perhaps is a, a better way of saying that. So I'm hoping that this this notion of surveillance as as an intimate act is quite telling. And I think that in those two chapters, it's made very clear that you thought very long and very hard about framing each of these chapters with the the concept of intimacy in mind.
1: Yes, and to take the second example, uh, this is a a runaway. He describes himself as an Englishman from Philadelphia, and he's come in from um, Saint-Domingue, and he's also been in Cuba, and he can make French, Spanish, and English dishes, (laughs) and presumably speak all three languages. And he just shows up one day uh, uh, within this plantation area, and it's, it's very interesting because there you see the, the initial uh, response, you know, clearly he must be recognized as a runaway or maybe just as a newcomer, and they'll, they'll, they'll give him, gave him eggs in one case. He promises to, to pave them, and, um, and then he never pays for the eggs, but he comes back and he joins in their dances, and he's very finely dressed, and he flirts with all the women. And so it's this extraordinary um, case because there – you have different notions of freedom as well. You know, none of them are free, but Francisca's claimed this different freedom of a a runaway. And the, the local community gets really quite annoyed with him, a lot to do with the fact that he's flirting with the women. And um, and using material culture and gifts of clothing, but that he's also not following the rules, and he might be flirting with the women, but then he might um, treat them badly. Um, he's um, also never pays for the eggs, which causes no end of, of, of strife. And in that case, you get you see both uh, evidence of a local community. This initial response, which is to help someone in need, to, to help an outsider who might need, it's a great risk to themselves, but they will offer eggs or whatever, right? They will help them. But that also it's very easy to uh, realize that they need to close ranks sometimes. And in this case, um, they're protecting their women, they're protecting social order and, um, and, and, Protecting what they what they have and what they need to to hold on to, um, with the case, um, and it, and it's very much they very much are um, enforcing rules in that area, and some members of that uh, local community are seen as as important um, keepers of social order within. Slave communities and and are respected and have authority and you know possibly spiritual authority from it. In the case of um, these two women who are attacked at the riverbank by a, a utterly uh, drunk and probably somewhat um, mentally ill French soldier who attacks them with a bayonet. Uh, and as you say, as they're being attacked, everyone runs down to try and help them. Once they they cry, you know, soldiers come and help the women. Uh, everyone steps in to help, and the soldiers prosecuted. But that one is um, it's an interesting one because one of the main um, figures, Louison, testifies that the the soldier had was attacking her with the bayonet, which is the blade from his gun. And he wheels it over. He's already hit her once with it, or, or pierced her, and he he holds this blade over her as she's tripped over. And he says, "Go on, kneel and ask my forgiveness." And in her testimony, so she says, you know, he said to me, "Go on." So you can hear the you can hear the dialogue here, right? She said, "He commanded her to go on, kneel, and ask my forgiveness." And I replied. It's only from God that we ask forgiveness. So you hear the dialogue, you hear her saying, me, my, etc." and you hear this response that she says she gave to him. And she's in immediate danger, and yet, according to her, she spoke back to him. She's owned by the Ursuline nun, so she has a notion she's baptized, etc. I won't get into what it might mean to her to be uh, to, to self-identify as Catholic. We don't have the room for this. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> um, but but we've got this violent moment, and yet a couple of things strike struck me about that testimony that she gives: a that she feels comfortable talking back to a Frenchman and and upbraiding him and showing and telling him, you know, don't you know your or your religion, young man. You know, we only kneel before God. And, but then she says she had no option to, to do as he said. And so she did as she was told. She got on her knees and she said, quote, sorry, sir. Now in the French, you can tell, you know, French has different rules of grammar for you. And it's, you've got the formal and the informal voice. And when she addresses him, she always uses the formal voice. When he addresses her, he uses the informal. but she uses that word "Sir." Now, in terms of recent happenings uh, uh, that, you know, we cannot believe is still happening in 2020. But um, we've had a little you know, if I may stray into the modern day, we've had a confluence of, of references to, to kneeling. We've got the football players. And, but also that phrase that she says when she finally kneels for him and she says, sorry, sir. Well, when George Floyd's brother testified before Congress, one of the things he said that as his brother was being restrained and murdered, he too kept calling the officers sir. And that just... Um, <sighs> It's that same sense of not just the surveillance, but the surveillance of actions, but also of submissiveness. You know, when that soldier tells tells Louison to kneel, he wants her to submit. Um, and she's make, drawing a parallel with kneeling before God, prayer, etc., right? But he's asking her to submit. And here at at these last moments of George Floyd, you know, the surveillance is also a surveillance of of, of an active demonstration of being submissive, you know, in this case to, to, to officers, and I think it, um, you know, that aspect of surveillance. I think we we need to, to, to just be reminded of its of its roots, um, which presumably is why it's so hard to to, to uproot. And yet we, we need to see that moment as well, not to see the violence. Um, and of course, what did those officers do or that particular officer? He was kneeling on the, on the neck of George Floyd, wasn't there? You know, got kneeling kneeling, kneeling metaphors all over the place at the moment. Um, so, but to not just think about the violence and the death, key as that is, but also that that surveillance or that expectation is is also about you know yeah the the behavior that, that one is expected to not one that, that black black people are still expected to 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 right. maintain
0: and I think that's an interesting parallel with. You know, if you were to call it something along the lines of the politics of deference and specifically in interacting with state officials, it's required or bodily harm is imminent. And you see this in in police recorded videos of individuals who are killed by the police all the time. There is a a, a response to authority in a very uh, polite and cooperative manner that unfortunately is not enough. To safeguard these people from harm. And it's that legacy. It's, it, it, I think of, of the cases of lynching and the, the testimonies of the individuals that Kidada Williams talks about, or Hannah Rosen talks about in their work on racial and sexual violence in the post-Civil War South, and that oftentimes there is a, a very willful act of deference in order to hopefully stave off the imminent physical or sexual harm that they are about to endure. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that's a really poignant connection.
1: And and you know, and if you go back to, to French Louisiana, I mean it is it is in the slave code that 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 blacks and they do use the word white and black in the seventeen twenty-four Code Noir, that blacks owe deference to whites and not just enslaved blacks, but free blacks, are deference to whites, especially to their former masters, um, and so you know it's in it's in the law that you have to show this deference, um, and there are consequences, you know, physical consequences uh, for doing so. Um, so, it, it, I I think that the the work on the early period that you know colonial america i think is so key to that because so much of it is formative and and finds a way to to trickle through unfortunately um but but just to say you know one other thing that strikes me um especially with with what's going on with black lives matter uh, movement right now is that you know this we say their names we say the names of the of the victims and in a way, it's it's not a direct parallel, but this is what I'm trying to do with the book as well. There are the each chapter has the names of the individuals, or at least the names that we we, we know them by. They might sometimes they have other names too, but but it is focusing on individuals. Um, that's the kind of history that that I can do. It's it's one in which we focus on individuals and and um, to be reminded, because I think sometimes when we see those, the, the huge figures, the millions who have suffered, it can get a little bit abstract. But when you're confronted with uh, what a Louison might say, or what a Lisette might say, or a Marie-Jeanne, or a Cunet, or a Jean-Baptiste, we're reminded that that these are individuals. and And I hope that their humanity is what comes through above all I mean often it's their personality as well there's quite a lot of humor and um, all sorts of other measures of their personality that come through as well but but it is very much you know each one of those millions that we don't know about (laughs) had as much individuality and personality as the those that I um, that that I try and unpack in through these trials
0: the final thing I wanted to ask before we concluded our interview today was what, and in some ways I feel as if you just answered that question, uh, but what would be your hope for the longevity of Voices of the Enslaved and what the readers and scholars that engage your book or the students who read your work in the future, what, what they take away from from these experiences and the power of testimony as in of itself An autobiographical narrative that, before your work, was not seen as such.
1: Yeah, I think maybe that that final point, uh, you know, which I make, uh, you you alluded to early as well, um, and also um, evoking Leslie Harris's work. You know, there is no such thing as a perfect archive, and I think that when we're dealing with uh, the enslaved and trying to get to their voices. We don't have the luxury to just say, oh, well, these trials are in, um, you know, false testimony in trials. They're being accused often, although, of course, they might be witnesses as well or, or victims. I don't think we have the luxury to not take them seriously. We We have to look at these. And what we do with them then is the next stage. And obviously I had to look into legal procedure and how it worked and what it meant when something was transcribed and how accurate it would be. Um, You know, the French, the the scribes, the courts, they had no problem with slavery. They weren't trying to defend themselves. They they were quite happy to write whatever was written. Um, And um, so I suppose the first thing is to be more open to what an archive might offer and to see what its limits are, but also what its potential is. And one of the extensions of my uh, work from this uh, book, um, well, there are a couple, I have a volume coming out, edited volume with Trevor Bernard that will come out in September on the testimony of enslaved Africans and Indians, in which we look at both English colonies and French colonies and uh, 1700 to 1848. So that's exciting. Different fantastic authors contributed to that. But I also am um, working on a digital humanities project that will launch hopefully in 2021 with the Omohundra Institute of Early American History and Culture in which I will have um, some complete, um, complete transcripts and translations of some trials from the archives so that... Whether it's in classroom use or if someone else wants to go and look at the whole archive, um, they can see the, the original manuscript page, my transcription, my translation I'm, I'm a native French speaker, so you know translation fortunately is um, something I can I can do <laughs> uh, without too many challenges um, and, um, and so but, but people can actually go and see the full trial and maybe be um, Interested to to make their own, make their own assessments of the evidence. Uh, as a scholar, I don't have a huge, huge ego in that you know someone else could come along and have a very different view to mine. But I think that most people looking at this evidence will be struck very much by um, the, the the personality, the character, the sense of humour, but also that these archives very much reflect their experience of the world and that when they are giving information, it's, it's very much evoking how they would have seen um, and understood what was happening to them and that these archives give us a, an extraordinary window into, into their views on their world and their lives and their loves.
0: I wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And I hope that you and your loved ones are well and staying healthy in this very crazy and uncertain world right now. Um, But for our listeners, as a reminder, Professor White's book, Voices of the Enslaved, can be purchased from the University of North Carolina Press. And I believe it's available only in hardcover currently. But uh, is the paperback version available as well, Professor White?
1: No, but it will be, it should be out in 2021, hopefully coinciding with the launch of the Digital Humanities Project on uh, on Slave Testimony at the Omaha. How
0: serendipitous. That's great. Well, well, thank you again. I hope you have a great day.
1: Thank you. It was a true, true uh, treat for me to be able to speak about this material.